morning, church. So I got a couple of quick notes for you as it relates to our scheduling and an update. And I just want to tell you, 11 o'clock service, that you are the most courteous, long-suffering, gracious service in this church. I want you to know that. The reason that I want to tell you that is uh, going to become apparent here in a minute. So <laughs> over the last year, uh, year and a half, we have not had an opportunity as a church family to gather as an entire church family since um, February of 2020 when we had our all-church communion service out on the lawn. And we know it's been, uh, a, 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 it's been a year. And so what we uh, felt like God calling us to do was for the next six weeks uh, to, to be able to have opportunity to worship together as a church family. And so here's what we're doing. Uh, on your way in, you should have received a summer schedule at DSBC. Uh, make sure to check that out. I'll actually pull it up here on the screen as well. Uh, and so for um, starting next Sunday, we're going to uh, have at 8.30, uh, that's a.m., 8.30 a.m. until about 9.30, we're going to have breakfast, and uh, we'll have coffee, donuts, and then a couple of the Sundays, we're going to have a big breakfast with eggs and pancakes and the little, the little like, vegetable thing that nobody eats that you put next to the eggs. You guys, what's that? Parsley? Yeah, parsley. What a waste of time. And, um, uh, and then at 9.30 for these six weeks, we're going to have a time of worship together. Again, it's an opportunity to worship together as a whole church family, and then after the service, uh, roughly about 1040-ish, we'll have some games and stuff out on the lawn. One of the days we'll have water day where we'll have water events for the kids uh, out on the lawn. We will continue to have adventure kids at 930, but 11 o'clock service, most gracious, long-suffering, give it up for the church family service. Uh, we will not be having an 11 o'clock service for the next six weeks, starting next week. And the reason that we made that choice was because we know that you're mature we know that you're not going to complain and grumble. And those Philistines at 9.30 are miserable. So I just need you to, need you to, <laughs> need you, uh, to make the switch for us. It's just for six weeks, and then we'll be back up the first Sunday of August. The, the, the main reason, again, isn't the food, and it's not the games. It's just an opportunity for us to connect. We've got a lot of folks who haven't seen each other face-to-face -face in over a year. We want to create space for that. There's voices that we've not uh, sung with together in over a year. We want to create some space for that. Also, there are a ton of people who recently started coming to Desert Springs. In fact, every week, uh, almost, I should say almost every week uh, this year, I've had someone come up to me and say, hey, we've been a part of Desert Springs for a year. This is my first time on campus. And so they don't know how weird we all are. And so again, 930 is an opportunity for them to discern uh, just how nutty we are as a church family. So we'd love to have you join us for that. I want to encourage you to make an intentional decision to make that 8.30 time slot. Uh, to even if, you know, if you're not in the donut phase, you know, bring your own food. That's totally fine. Again, the goal is not the food. The goal is to connect with one another. And I know that God's woven us together as a church family for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to be able to bless one another. And we, it, it's kind of hard to do that sometimes when we're not face-to-face. -face. So I want to encourage you to do that. I know still a lot of us are, are gathering online, and we love having you join us. We will continue to stream the 930 service. 
Uh, and then, of course, for those of you that are getting out of the valley to escape the heat, you can still check us out online. The second update I have uh, really quick is uh, we try to be uh, open as we can be about our finances and our fiscal year as a church family concludes the end of this month. So our budgetary year runs from July 1st all the way until the end of June. And so end of June is coming up. And for our quarterly giving goal, uh, our quarterly giving goal this quarter is $325,000, of which, because of your generosity as of last Sunday, $228,719.82 has been uh, given. Uh, Thank you guys so much for that. And we're just asking everybody to pray that God would provide the $96,280, and don't forget the 18 cents, Uh, to uh, hit that goal. When we can hit our quarterly giving goal, it positions us to be able to hit the ground running uh, in the next fiscal year. And so uh, for those of you where we have your your mailing address or email address, we have sent uh, those updates out. I think think it was last week, but it it may be this week. Last week was Splash Camp, so I haven't slept in a week. Um, Today, we're going to continue a conversation that we've been having around uh, generosity and money. And one of the main reasons why we want to do that is because in this particular culture, in in Phoenix, uh, the temptation to have a bad relationship with money is high. We have so many corrupt views on money. In fact, we even have identifying uh, uh, statements about ourselves that I think are really dangerous. Like, and I get it, and I'm certainly not bashing on any economists, but I hear you and me, I hear to us referred to as the American consumer. And, and being defined as a consumer can, can, can distort my view of money. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about money in a way that my, my hope is, as your pastor, and I, I love you guys so much, the last thing I want to do is shower any sort of guilt or shame or fear. Don't we already feel enough guilt, shame, and fear as it relates to money? Right? And so the reason that we're stepping into this conversation is because I believe that when we have hard conversations, which as a church family, we're committed to having hard conversations. When we have hard conversations in those hard spaces of our life that make us feel guilt, shame, and fear, when we invite Jesus into those places, when we invite Jesus in to transform our view and our mind around those hard issues, we don't find guilt, shame, or fear. What we find is joy. And my hope for you, my prayer for you, is that you would find joy as it relates to the area of money and generosity. And some of us are saying, like, I don't think that's possible. Listen, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered over Satan, sin, and death, which means it's possible by the power of his spirit to have our minds renewed and changed as it relates to money. Now, there are many of us who may be saying, you know, pastors, I hear preachers all the time, and they just want my money. And I want to be very clear. That is correct. (laughs) That is 100% correct. I definitely want your money. I think you should give me not all of it, but most of it. I think I could buy so many things that I want with your money. Please give me your money. Now, that is uh, ungodly. Uh, It's wrong. It's one of the reasons why we have a strong board to keep me from using the scripture to manipulate your emotions in order to generate you to give me more revenue. That is a very real risk, and I want to name it, and I want to tell you that we have systems in place as a church family to try to protect us from that and to try to protect me from that. But I can't in good conscience tell you that I don't want all your money. 
I, I do. I want more money. I, I continually fall into the trap of thinking that my life would be more joyous, that I would feel more secure, that I would be more happy if I just had a little bit more what? Money. Now, how about you? Right? I, I, part of me kind of feels like maybe I'm not alone in this. And so we need to go and see what Jesus has to say to shape our views about money. We have such an unhealthy relationship with money in our community, in our culture, and I'd just like to prove to you the power that money has over us. We don't want to talk about it. Like an evil specter over in the corner, we just don't even want to look over there because if we look over there, we might not like what we find. Money's power over us is on full display in our unwillingness to talk about it. Healthy people talk about things. Healthy people bring Jesus into these hard-to-talk-about spaces, not with fear, not with shame, not with guilt, but with an identity formed by Christ. And so, as a church family, we want to be healthy people. Uh, I, you, listen, there's this other really weird thing, another pastor has pointed this out. I've experienced it myself. I'll be, I'll be talking to a couple, like doing like maybe pre-marriage coaching or something like that, and inevitably, we'll talk about sex, money, and power. And when we talk about sex, do you know how open people generally are? T- too open. Like, like sometimes they're saying things, and I'm like, I'm, I don't blush easily, but my goodness, dial it back a notch. And then you start having a conversation about money, and what do they say? Oh, that's personal. It's personal. Right? We're comfortable bringing people into the bedroom, but we're not comfortable bringing people into the bank account. What does that say about our particular cultural moment. And by the way, Phoenicians are kind of weird. I know that as a church family, we are a bunch of misfits from all different walks of life, bound together not by our common affinities, but bound together by the love and grace of God made known to us through Jesus, which means there are many people within our church family who were not primarily shaped by the Phoenician culture. And in my experience, especially those who come from a culture that's more communally based, where the individual does not see themselves primarily as an individual, but primarily as a member of a clan or family, They talk much more openly about money because they don't view money as theirs, they view it as ours. And so there is something uh, uniquely poignant, at least here in our cultural moment, that we want to bring into. And when we think about that communal-based culture, that is much more in line with what we find in the culture that's being addressed in uh, the Scriptures. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'd invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available on the tables in the back. Please feel free to grab one of those. I'll also have the text up on the screen. For those of you who are watching online or if you have a digital device here, you can just go to like Bible.com or uh, Bible Gateway and get free access to a Bible. Uh, Money, what we'll find, money is a good thing created by God to be used to bless others. Humans oftentimes take good things created by God, used, designed to bless others, and, and have a corrupt view of them and end up using the good thing for bad. End up using the good thing to not bring blessing, but to bring curse. I'll give you an example. There's three things that we oftentimes talk about uh, here in the States. We talk about sex, we talk about money, and we talk about power. These are the three things that, at least as our culture, we're constantly trying to accumulate more of. Sex, money, and power. Sex, money, and power are all good gifts given to us by God to be stewarded 
for the blessing and flourishing of others. However, because of the corruption in our own hearts, we can often take those good gifts, twist them or corrupt them, and use them not to be a blessing but to be a curse. Have you guys ever seen anything like that ever happen? Once or twice. And so having a healthy view of money means that we not only don't, we, we, we are unchained from the, uh, the, the toxic shame and fear that entraps us when we think about money, but we're also in a better position to increase human flourishing, to increase blessing and not increase curse. So we're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and, and discover how that might work in our lives. So I'm going to kick us off. We're in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, and we're going to try to get through 15. We'll see how it goes. Oh, uh, let me tell you the context real quick. So there's this dude named Paul. He wrote this letter to a place in Corinth. It was a bunch of Christians in a place called Corinth. That's why we, and it's the second letter that we have from Paul to this church in Corinth, which is why we call the letter 2 Corinthians. And one of the things that a lot of the writers of the New Testament do is they, they have a high view of Jesus, and they, they, they proclaim the good news of who Jesus is, that he's the Lord, that he's the king, that he died for us, that he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And they take that good news, and they begin to apply that to very specific circumstances that a specific church is dealing with. One of the specific circumstances that's happening in the broader church in Paul's day is that there is a famine. Everybody say famine. Now, when there's a famine, that means you can't get enough food. And so the resources get thin. And generally, those in power, those with power and those with money, generally try to get more of the resources and hoard those resources. But what Paul does is he takes the good news of the gospel and he applies it to this famine. And he's writing to the church in Corinth saying, hey, remember, we're all raising some money to send back to that church in Jerusalem that's experiencing a famine. But here's the two extremes that Paul goes to great lengths to not fall into. One extreme of view of money is that money is everything, that our safety, security, our happiness, our joy, everything is wrapped up in money. If I had more money, I'd be more happy. If I had more money, I'd be more secure. If I had more money, I'd just finally be somebody. And on the opposite extreme, we have a view generally uh, motivated by a disgust for what this view produces, where money is bad, money is, is, is awful, money is something to do away with. We've got to give all of our money away. We can't have any money. And between these two extremes, Paul doesn't want to give the impression that he's going into one or the other. Rather, he says there's a Jesus way that views money as a good thing given to us by God to be stewarded for the blessing and flourishing of others. Watch what he does, okay? And I want, you, I want to be very clear here. God, in his design for money, according to my understanding of Scripture, and I like to argue this from 2 Corinthians, his design for material possessions is not only for the enjoyment uh, of others, but also for ourselves, too, that there's a joy that comes in giving. There's a joy that comes in living generously, and God's design is for us to have joy. Take a look at this. So Paul, remember, he's talking about what's he doing? He's reminding them of the, um, the famine and the famine relief, right? Okay, so notice what he says. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous, what's the word? The generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a, what's the word? And not as an extortion. Take a note of that. Notice what he's doing. He's contrasting a gift with what? Extortion. Dang, that's strong language. Let's keep going. 
The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as they have decided in their own heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Do you remember, what was the word that he used? It was an E word, extortion. Not under compulsion, not being extorted, since God loves a cheerful what? Cheerful giver. Now note this, at the time of this writing, the hearers of this letter, which would have been read aloud in their assemblies, would know what it's like to give money under extortion or under compulsion. They lived under the Roman Empire. Now, uh, did you guys ever see the movie Gladiator or take a Western Civ class? Were the Romans known for being quite generous and lenient on taxes? No. No. Right? If you lived, especially if you were not a Roman citizen, if you lived under the occupation of Rome, they would take a spear, point it at you, and put their hand out like this. And what did you do if you wanted to stay alive? You cut that check, right? Paul knows what every one of these hearers would have immediately known. I know what it is to give under compulsion. I know what it means to be forced by extortion to give of my funds to some other entity, to some other group. Do you see it? And Paul's saying, that's not what we're doing here. God is not coming to you as a Roman soldier saying, give it to me or perish. You see, there are many of us who can fall into this trap of thinking, if I just cut my God tax check every month, then I'll be blessed. And we're operating as if God is the IRS and I write my check and I send it to him and then I expect blessing in return as long as I pay my God tax. I want you to just receive this truth. Are you ready? God does not need you. God does not need your money. Literally, the atomic infrastructure of the data bits in you, that present your digits on your bank account, all of that works because he holds the cosmos together in his hand by the word of his power. Do you think he needs your money? You see, the gift of generosity is primarily a gift to the giver, not the recipient. He, God is not sitting, looking over the whole created order, looking at a need and saying, I hope Caleb finally gets his act together. I could really use a little extra help. The gift of generosity is primarily for the giver more than it is for the recipient. God wants something for you in living generously. God wants to give you a gift in living generously. Number two, you guys ever heard of John 3.16? It's all a favorite, crowd favorite. Uh, how does it go? It's like, for God, um, for God, uh, what, what is that thing? For God so loved the world that he, okay, so pause. Giving is God-like. Giving is God-like. A life marked by generosity is a life that mirrors the gospel. Here's the good news. God took on flesh and gave of himself for you. And what did Jesus give? He gave everything. For whom? For you and for me. When we see in scripture calls to generous living, it is not because God is like, hey, can you pay me back for the resurrection, bro? <laughs> right? It's not a God tax. There's a, so, so just, just press, everyone just pump the brakes. If it's true, which it is, 
that God became one of us, took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and gave everything for me, not because of what I could do for him, but because of his sheer goodness, his sheer grace, his sheer love for me, then is it reasonable to think that when he calls me to follow him, it's also for my good and for my joy? God wants to give us a gift in living generously because living generously is God-like. Okay, let's keep going. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, having everything you, what's the word? Everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Note this, what is the thing that keeps us from living generously? We convince ourselves that we do not yet have what? Enough. Here's the problem with enough. Every time I, on my own merits, on my own wisdom, from my own view, every time I define enough, you know where it is in relationship to my bank account? And every time my bank account goes up, what happens to my enough? Right? And so, I, I, so instead of asking, okay, so what, what, when will I have enough? If I read this text correctly, I'm going to read it one more time. If I read this text correctly, then I have everything I could possibly need. Watch. God is able. God is what? To make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you what? Here's the problem. Too often, because we're American consumers, we redefine want with need. And I'm, not, I'm the first offender. Okay, I'm going to prove it to you. Welcome into my house. We need new countertops. We need a new light fixture. I need a 1991 Bronco. How, how else am I going to get the countertops to the house, right? I mean, it's, obviously it's a need. I, I want to encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to ring a little bell in your mind when you use the word need. And let that little bell ring in your mind and say, wait a minute, did I use need when I should have used want? And it's okay to want. I mean, listen, countertops, Broncos, right? All good gifts from God. Bronco first though. All good gifts from God, right? Like we're not talking about throwing everything away, right? That's that other side. But, but rather than thinking of money in terms of how much do I need, Rather say, because of who Jesus is, I have everything I need, so therefore, how shall I then wisely and lovingly steward the resources that God's given to me? Hear me. Instead of talking about need, because in Jesus I have everything I need, rather view the material resources that God has been given to you, that God has, excuse me, gifted to you, and say, what is the wise and loving way for me to live generously, taking care of myself, taking care of my family, and taking care of others? Do you see the difference? Because if we focus on need and we don't see Jesus as meeting the need, guess what? The money never adds up. There's never enough money to meet all my perceived possible needs. So I need to see that my needs are met in Jesus and then to live as a steward of those good resources. Okay. Um, oh, my goodness. So here's the deal, right? Money is a good thing given to us by God to live as stewards in order to bless others. 
But because of the corruption of our own hearts, because of the corruption within our even communities, we can oftentimes misalign our hearts or have a corrupt view of money that ends up doing more harm than good. So we need, I want to encourage you to consider what are the disciplines, what are the spiritual disciplines or practices that I can bring into my life that might signal if I'm having an unhealthy relationship with money. I'd like to give you a couple examples that I find in Scripture. One is called the tithe. Tithe is like a weird bible word that just means 10%. And especially in the Older Testament, you see this call for people who follow God to give 10% of their resources uh, into ministry of God, into what God is doing. Now, there are many of us who say, okay, Caleb, are you telling me that as a Jesus follower, I have to give 10% of my income to the work of ministry? And here's where I'm at with it. I, I actually, in my reading of Scripture, I, I, I'm glad to argue uh, with you over it. Um, my reading of Scripture is that Christians are not bound to the tithe. I, I don't think Jesus demands 10% of our resources. And the reason no one's amening is because you all know me well enough to know that there's another shoe that's about to drop. <laughs> Jesus doesn't demand 10%. He demands our whole life. Every breath, every molecule, every aspect of my being is under what I would refer to as the kingship of Jesus. I am utterly and totally his. When, when I have a distorted view of the spiritual discipline of the tithe or that practice, which I do think is a really healthy discipline, not a command, a discipline, but, but when I have like a, a, a corrupt view of the tithe, I can easily fall into the temptation of thinking I wrote my God tax check. And now the rest of the stuff, like this one's for God, and the rest of it's just, it just doesn't matter. I can spend it however I want. Jesus demands all of life, and it's for our good. And so rather than saying, okay, what's the percentage? I, I just, I want to say, okay, I'm a part of a bigger community. I'm part of the community of humanity, which I think Paul is actually riffing on the Jubilean principle, which recognizes that everything is God's and that we're all one big human family. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, do you know how he started his prayer? Our, so, so our, what? So he recognizes humanity, he recognizes that all the material resources, that all comes from God. And I can either hoard it or I can live generously and, and live the gospel in living generously, recognizing that I am part of a greater family than just my own. I'm not an, I am not a consumer. That's not my identity. And so that spiritual discipline, that discipline of the tithe, that giving of 10%, I think is, is a great place to start. I think it's a great tool. Uh, for some of us, God may be calling for more. For others, maybe not as much. It just It's so dependent upon what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now in this moment. There's another spiritual practice. By the way, my wife and I, we practice the tithes. We found it to be really helpful, um, but we're also continually looking for ways to also increase our generosity as the Lord would lead. And, and I, I want to encourage you too. Like, that's just a recurring conversation, right? Lord, how are you, how are you leading us now? I, I want to encourage you to have a recurring conversation with God about your money and your power and also your sex. God, what... What, what are you doing now in my life? Where, where are you at? What are you calling me to? There's this um, great line in the scripture that refers to following Jesus as following the way. Have you guys ever been on like a hike or, or walked in life? 
Anyone walked about? Um, maybe from your car into here. Or you go on a hike, or you go on like a, a sojourn or a journey or something like that. Um, are, are you stationary for very long? No, but when you're going for a hike, when you're going on a long journey, you, you're kind of just saying, okay, where, where's my next move? Right? At this next turn, where do I go now? And if you have a guide taking you, they're going to be telling you, okay, right up here, we're going to take a right. And, and following Jesus is following his way, which means I'm always looking for a step forward and, and listening to my leader, Jesus, saying, okay, up here, we're going to take this turn. Okay, here, we're going to take this turn. So having a recurring conversation around our material resources, there's blessing there for us. There's another spiritual discipline, and that's called the first fruits. And this one, nobody's going to like. So the principle of first fruits is that we give first to the Lord and then to the other things. We, we give first. Uh, it's this idea that if you, if you lived in an agrarian community and maybe you raised cattle or, or sheep or you, you, corn or whatever it was, that you would take and you would give of that 10% and you would give of that first to the Lord and then you would see what happens next with the remainder. And the, the, the issue with the first fruits principle uh, is that you're, in, you're, you're showing a, a, a great deal of, of putting this into practice. You're saying, Lord, I'm going to give to you first because I trust that you're going to provide for my every need. Can you believe that? That's crazy. <laughs> and yet there's a gift there for us. You guys ever heard of the farmer with the two cows? All right, so many years ago, I've heard this from a few different preachers, so I think it's just unattributed. There was a farmer, and he had a couple cows. And one of the cows gets pregnant, which is like awesome, because that's a lot of money for a farmer with just a couple cows. And then lo and behold, the cow delivers twins. That's awesome. Double the money, right? And the farmer is so elated. He says, oh, Lord, you're so good. And he goes to his wife. He says, honey, I, we, we, we've got twin cows, and, and the Lord has been so good. The Lord is so generous. I, I'm going to devote one of the cows to the Lord. And so I'm going to raise both cattle up the same way. And when it comes time to sell them at market, I'm going to give all the proceeds from, the, from, from one of the cows to the Lord, and I'm gonna, we're going to take the proceeds of the other. And the wife said, oh, my goodness, how generous. And so the, the farmer raised up the cows. And then lo and behold, one day the farmer, with a sullen look on his face, walked in and made eye contact with his wife. And he said, I have horrible news. The Lord's cow died. <laughs> she said, I don't remember you saying which cow was the Lord and which one was yours. And he says, oh, no. No, no. I remember explicitly thinking that's the cow that goes to the Lord and the Lord's cow died. And so we're not able to be generous. Isn't it always the Lord's cow that dies? The thing that keeps us from a life of generosity is fear that Jesus can't come through on his promises. It's always the Lord's cow that dies. Let's keep going. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here, I think he's riffing on Psalm, I think it's 112. He continues on. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Okay, time out. Have you guys heard the language of thanksgiving and gift used throughout this text? 
right? Okay, um, here's something that we miss because we, 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 we translate everything into English and we kind of are disconnected a little bit from the original language. Do you know what the word grace means? We use the word grace like we sing a song. What's this song? It's um, mediocre goodness. What is it? Uh, amazing grace, amazing grace, right? We, say, we sing amazing grace. We say things like, oh, but what, what is it there? But by the grace of God go I. Some people say that. Uh, sometimes when we're praying before a meal, we'll call it what? Say, saying grace. And that's actually really close to the language. So, so the, the word that oftentimes gets translated as grace, as grace is the word charis, which, which means gift. When the Apostle Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians, when he was meditated on and thinking about how to describe God taking on flesh in Jesus, giving his life for you and me, dying and then rising from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, when he was trying to think of a word to talk about that, do you know what word he picked? He said it's a gift of God. It's, a, it's the charis. It's the grace gift of God. And notice what he's doing here. He's taking his understanding of the grace gift of God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And he's applying it to famine relief in Jerusalem. And you know what he calls the, uh, the money that's going to go from the Corinthian church to the church in Jerusalem? Do you know what word he uses? Grace. He calls it the gift this gift that you're going to give. In fact, the Apostle Paul will so interweave the giving of gifts and spiritual gifts with the gift that we've received from God. He weaves them all together because in his mind, he sees that a life transformed by the grace gift of God produces grace gifts to others. Do you see it? When we live generously, when we give, we mirror the, what Jesus has done for us. And there's a gift waiting for you in a life of generosity. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually says that Jesus himself said, it is better to what? Give than to what? It is better to give than receive. And you see it here, that, that this gift, this grace gift, this gift that you're giving to this church in Jerusalem is not only going to meet their needs, it will, notice this, it produces What? Oh, man. Oh, this is so good. Do you know what word that is used in the original language that gets translated as thanks? Notice the word, thanks what? Giving. It comes from the root of charis, which is grace, um, which is why when we sit at a table and we pray, someone will say, hey, would you please return thanks? Or would you say grace? They mean the same thing. Because in, the, in, in their mind, the giving of the gift was reciprocal in the giving of thanksgiving. In fact, in some Christian traditions, they will refer to, when they take communion, they will refer to it as the gifts. In fact, the language of thanksgiving it sounds a lot like the word that some of you in a liturgical tradition, if you grew up in a liturgical tradition, would recognize. Sometimes communion or Lord's table is also called another word. You, charist, charis, grace. But the grace is this way. And Paul even says, I'm not asking you to engage in charity where you're up here and they're down here. This is an equity. He actually says it's an equity in chapter 8, that there's a reciprocity here. There's a giving of a gift and there's receiving of a gift and then there's giving of a gift and there's receiving a gift. And when we live generously, we are both giving and receiving gifts, though not all of them are monetary. 
And don't you know that the best gifts are not monetary? What God wants for us in a life of generosity is a life of receiving gifts. In the giving of the gift, we also receive. And Paul is saying it here. Look, the thanksgiving to God through us, right? They're receiving it. It's aiding their, their tummies are hungry. You are providing food for them. They sing praise to God and it is through us. It's a reciprocity of gift giving. Let's keep going. For the ministry of this service is not only, note this, not only supplying the needs of the saints, that's their tummies, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to whom? Generosity begets more generosity and generosity oftentimes begets worship. I'm going to tell you a story. Met a guy a couple few years ago. He had just found out about Desert Springs, was curious about Jesus, and he and I met up, and he had these really great questions about what it means to follow Jesus, and if he started following Jesus, what would change in his life? And one of the things, uh, after he started following Jesus, he was listening to sermons and stuff online and reading his Bible, and uh, he found out that there was someone within our church family, a single mom, who... Uh, did not have the financial means to qualify for a good loan to get into a home. And during a sermon, it wasn't mine, it was a, it was a podcast from a, a really good preacher. During, um, dur- during the listening of the sermon, the, the sermon was about a similar text to 2 Corinthians 9. And, and he recognized, okay, so Jesus has been generous to me. I get to mirror Jesus by being generous to others. What resources do I have? And he said, and he told me this. He said, I noticed I had two resources. I know how money works. I have some of it. And I also know how real estate works. And I know that one of the keys for families and generations to get out of poverty is home ownership. And he found out that there was a person in our church family, single mom, who just could not get just all the systems that are in place. She could not get into home ownership. And so he fronted the funds. He created a whole structure to be able to put her in a home so she can uh, earn equity in her home. And so she and her uh, child uh, can have this accumulation of wealth that they can give to their successive generations and so that it can be generous as well to some other family members who are now living with them. And you know what he told me a few months ago? I think I want to do that 40 more times. And do you know that the people who've been, who've been blessed by that, do you, do you know what more often than not they do? They say thank you to him, but do you know who they also thank? They say, God, thank you. Now, there's a lot of zeros at the end of that story. Let me tell you another story. There's a woman who I have huge respect and love for in our congregation. And one time we were in the kitchen uh, setting up some event, and she said, you know, you know um, those like two-liter bottles of soda? I always buy the off-brand, but you know what else I do? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, this is going to be great. And she's leaning in. She's like, I take half of it, and I pour it in the old empty bottle, and then I fill them both up with water because I don't need it to be that sweet. And then I use the money that I save to bless other people. And so whether it's, right, do, do you see that both of these people are participating in God's good gift of giving good gifts and then also receiving? The reason that both of them made those sacrifices is because not only God has modeled it for us, but they find gifts there for themselves. They find a joy there. And church family, that's my prayer for you is that you would find that when you bring Jesus into this space of your life, that he would transform your view of money from an unhealthy or corrupted view 
into a healthy, joy-filled view of money. Money is a good thing created by God, designed to be a blessing to others, not a curse. And though our hearts can be corrupted and we can use God's good gifts and we can corrupt them, by the power of the Spirit of the living God and using the tools that he has given to us, we can find joy and beauty and a true gift waiting for us when we mirror to one another the grace gift of God by giving gifts to others, especially as the other has need. So here's what we're going to do.